If you'll open your Bibles this morning to the passage that Ray just read to us in Luke chapter 5. As you're turning there, let me share with you one of the most, uh, one of the biggest surprises I had when I became a Christian was I was completely unaware that it was the, that the religious people were those who were most opposed to Jesus and not secular culture. I w- I just had no idea, having not been raised in church and knowing very little to almost nothing about the Bible, and particularly about uh, the life and ministry of Jesus, to discover that it was the religious folks, the most religious folks. In fact, the religious elite that were, that were most opposed to him. I don't know what I was expecting or anticipating as I became a Christian and they began, and my church began to disciple me and I began to read and study the Bible, uh, but I, I didn't expect that. And I think some of us, maybe most of us that were raised going to church, we just know from our earliest days that it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the religious, the religious elite that opposed Jesus the most. And that they manipulated and coerced the Roman government, and then the Roman government became complicit in the, in the execution of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. In Luke's study, in Luke's gospel so far, we haven't found the religious leaders opposed to him. In fact, if you'll just think back with me for just a moment as we work our way through the book kind of quickly, getting ourselves brought up to speed, and I think this will help us better understand what we're about to study, is the first two chapters, the birth and infancy narratives, they describe to us uh, the conception and the birth of John the Baptist and and Jesus. Then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, we see the ministry of John the Baptist. In chapter 3, 21 and 22, we see the baptism of Jesus. The rest of chapter 3 is engaged in the genealogy of Jesus. Chapter 4, 1 through 11 is the temptation of Jesus. Chapter 4, 13 through uh, verse 30, Jesus ministers in a synagogue in Nazareth. And there we find him rejected by his hometown, the people that knew him best. So the first opposition to Jesus during his adult ministry came from those who were most familiar with him. Then beginning in chapter 4, about verse 30, through the end of the chapter, Jesus performs a series of miracles that extend into chapter 5. He casts a demon out of a man in a Capernaum synagogue. He heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law of a very high um, fever. He spends an entire evening casting out demons and and healing the sick. Then in chapter 5, Uh, We see a nature miracle where Jesus tells the disciples, cast your nets onto the right side of the boat. That just wasn't uh, intuitiveness by Jesus. That was divine, uh, divine energy at work that brought all of that about. And they caught so many fish that two boats were so full that they began to sink. We're going to look at the passage in just a moment that Ray read to us. In all of these most recent passages, Jesus has been performing extraordinary miracles. He's going to perform an extraordinary miracle in the passage that follows the one that Ray read to us, which we'll also look at today, where Jesus heals a paralytic. But something that happens there is going to be a theme that takes us through the next several passages. 
It's not a major thought in the next several passages, but it's an important thought. And the thought is opposition to Jesus is going to arise, but it's going to come from the religious establishment. If you have a written copy of God's Word, you might want to underline this. Look in chapter 5, verse 21. Underline this question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the question and the issue that we'll look at a little bit later in our study this morning. And then in verse 30, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees and the scribes are the ones that are asking that question. The word Pharisee, interestingly enough, it means separated ones. There were about 6,000 Pharisees in Jesus' day. What was it they were separated from? Well, primarily from people like you and me, ordinary people, average people. The Pharisees lived according to the oral traditions, and there were a lot of them. The oral traditions were established by the rabbis, the scribes. And this long list of oral traditions were not mandates that are found in the Scriptures. They were added to the Scriptures. They were added to the Scriptures to make sure that our lifestyle was commensurate with the kind of religion the Pharisees and the scribes thought that we should live. And so when it says, why don't you eat with tax collectors and sinners, the separated ones separated themselves from people like you and me. People that didn't live scrupulously pious lives according to man-made rules and regulations. In verse 33, again, the Pharisees are questioning and, and uh, putting uh, complaints toward, forward to Jesus. John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same. But yours eat and drink. That is, the Pharisees have prescribed days for fasting twice a week. Only one day in the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, prescribed for fasting the Day of Atonement. In the prophetic literature, other days of fasting were introduced. Fasting is a very appropriate spiritual discipline. But what's good a few times a year is good twice a week. And, and let's, make it a, let's make it a rule. Let's make it a regulation that if you're going to be a good Orthodox Jewish person, you're going to fast twice a week on the days that we decide are, are the days for fasting. And then the last one is in chapter 6, verse 2. Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Of this long list of man-made rules, 39 rules govern the Sabbath day, appropriate and inappropriate activity on the Sabbath day. As you've heard me say before, a woman couldn't look in a mirror on the Sabbath day, lest she see a gray hair, pluck it out, that'd be considered work. And good news that he didn't mention men. Secondly, you couldn't walk more than two-thirds of a mile on the Sabbath day, lest you break into a sweat, that'd be considered work. So a Sabbath day's journey was two-thirds of a mile, and this went on and on and on and on. Man-made rules, man-made regulations, pious observances that don't have scriptural authority. And so as we look at these two passages today, where Jesus performs miraculous healings, first of a man with leprosy, and then second of a man who is paralyzed, we're going to see the divine Savior plays by his own rules. He plays by biblical rules. He plays by the rules that, that he's established. In the very first story, we, we find a, what I call an unexpected encounter in verse 12. Here we find a man with leprosy approaching Jesus. 
Now, leprosy was an infectious disease that carried a, a wide variety of, of medical diagnoses. For example, it could be just a serious skin infection, or it could be more serious, comparable to what's known today as Hansen's disease. That's what we typically think of when we think of leprosy. Not everybody in the ancient world who had leprosy would have had Hansen's disease, but many did. This man probably did. It says he was covered with leprosy. It was considered terribly infectious. And it, it rendered you ritualistically impure. The Old Testament had some stringent requirements for people who had leprosy. Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46 says this, the leprous person who has this disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone his dwelling shall be outside the camp. So if you had leprosy, you couldn't live among people. If you had leprosy, you had to be separated from your family. If you had leprosy, you needed to, to present yourself in a way that it was obvious and demonstrable that you, were, that you had an infectious disease. So your, your clothing was torn and tattered. Your, your hair would be disheveled. And if people step, kept coming towards you, pressing near to you. You were to cover your upper lip and, and, and cry out, unclean, unclean. Just imagine the, the humiliation and the degradation a person must have felt. Uh, leprosy begins by, by causing you to lose the feeling, the sense of feeling in your extremities, beginning with your fingers and your toes. So you can imagine if, if you can't feel pain in your hands and your feet, eventually you're going, to, you're, you're going to suffer irreparable damage. You're going, you're going to, to hit your hand and not know that you've injured it. And, and so it was very common for leprous people to have, to have crippled, crippled hands. And often it would begin to rot the skin away. So you're crippled and your skin is rotting away and you're crying out, unclean, unclean, isolated and alone. You know, that might have been the worst part of the entire experience for a person tragically inflicted with leprosy. How horrible to have to live your life alone and isolated. He says to Jesus, it's a little bit surprising first that, that he approaches them, but he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He knows Jesus can do it. He says it. He has the faith that Jesus can do it. You can make me clean if you are willing. Now, why would Jesus not be willing? If you've lived a significant part of your life, even months, if not years, without any human interaction, with it, no one touching you and constantly yelling out, unclean, unclean. You begin to think that way about yourself. I'm unclean. I'm unfit. I'm unwhole, unwholesome. Uh, I'm, I look like a freak of nature. 
If you're willing, you could heal me. I mean, if you would be willing to do it for somebody like me. And praise be to God, Jesus says, I am willing. And then he makes an unusual move. It's a shocking response in verses 13 through 16. He reaches out and he touches the man. Now, Jesus didn't have to touch him to heal him. Jesus didn't even have to speak to heal him. He just had to think a thought, be healed, and instantly he would have been healed. But Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's discipling his disciples. He's instructing his followers by what he does. He reaches out and he touches the person. A number of years ago when the AIDS epidemic was just beginning... And, and it seemed to just be, just be spreading like wildfire. There, there was some discussion about how churches should handle, particularly pastors, about people who might come to church with AIDS, get saved, and would you baptize them? Would you get in the baptismal waters, exposing yourself to an infectious disease, and baptize someone with AIDS? Well, I think it's absolutely clear what Jesus would do. It would be a reproach unto God not to do what Jesus would do. And of course, we, and we would all, I would hope, be in agreement that you would want your ministerial staff to baptize someone with an infectious disease if Jesus Christ had saved them. Baptism is the first step of obedience in the Christian life. And so Jesus reaches out and he, and he touches this man. He's willing and the man is, the man is cleansed. And the most unusual thing happens. Usually, there's a transmission of uncleanness from the person who is unclean to the person who is clean. That is, the person with leprosy is unclean. If the person who doesn't have leprosy comes in contact with them, you would think the transmission of uncleanness would then would transmit to the healer, to the person who is ritually pure. So it goes from ritual impurity to ritual impurity, but that's not the way that it works with Jesus. In fact, there's a reversal of the transmission. The one who is clean cleanses the one who is unclean. Now, Jesus knew all of the rules and the regulations about what you ought to do in order to remain ritualistically pure. And yet he constantly and continually goes against those ritualistic uh, obligations. For example, we'll see just in a couple of chapters. He's going to be approached by a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. She's seriously ill. She's ritually impure because of her, because of her bleeding. She would have had to have stayed something of a distance from crowds because to come into contact with someone that was bleeding would have rendered you ritually impure and, and, and unfit to be able to go into synagogue worship. She, she maneuvers her way through the crowd. She touches Jesus and the transmission goes from clean to clean, not unclean to clean. In the very same chapter, Jesus is going to approach a dead girl. She's 12 years of age. She's just been dead a brief period of time. To come into contact with a corpse was to render you ritually impure. The corpse is impure. You will be impure. But Jesus touches the girl. He could have just thought the thought be, be revived. He could, have, he could have just 
waved his hands over, be revived, but he reached down and he touched her. And there's the reversal of the, of the purity-impurity. The impurity doesn't transmit to him. His purity transmits to them. That's the way it is when Jesus saves us. Jesus takes our impurity upon himself when he dies in our place. You know, let me ask you this. Have you been touched by Jesus? Has your impurity been, have you been made righteous with God, right with God, because you've been touched by Jesus? See, Jesus is not afraid to touch that which is decomposing or that which is afflicted. You know, your marriage, in fact, may be decomposing right before your eyes. It's dead like a rotting corpse. It's two people living together that despise one another. Can Jesus reverse that which is decomposing? He absolutely can, if you're willing to draw near to Jesus. Jesus isn't afraid of our affliction. He's not just willing, he's able. Now, the interesting thing is what Jesus does. You'll notice in verse 16, the, the crowds are increasing. Uh, people are, are, are pressing uh, ever closer to him. But he himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. You'll notice the ministerial success and popularity didn't send him to Twitter. It sent him to prayer. It didn't send him to the social media world. It sent him to a time alone with God. We don't know why Jesus felt like he couldn't do life without praying, but obviously he felt like he couldn't do life without praying because at every important moment of his life, he's found praying. We found him, we found him praying in chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. When he's being baptized, he's praying. Here in chapter 5, he's praying. In chapter 6, before he chooses the 12 disciples, he'll be praying. Jesus was a man of prayer. If Jesus needed to pray, God help us if we aren't men and women of prayer. You're not smart enough, nor am I, to raise my children on my own without prayer. You're not a good enough spouse. I can tell you this, nor am I to try to navigate a relationship with someone that you spend more time with than any other person in the world without prayer. Popularity and success didn't put him on Twitter. It sent him to be alone with God. That's the opposite of what we often do in ministerial life. I want you to notice, though, the second story. It's an amazing story. It's a story that we're familiar with. It demonstrates the authority of the divine Savior. Your sins are forgiven. There's an ominous setting. Look in verse 17. One day, 
he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. So here Jesus is preaching, teaching a crowd of people, and the religious establishment have come from all over Israel. From Jerusalem, Judea, from Galilee, they're all crowded in. And they're not there to learn, they're there to criticize. They're not there to learn, they're there to ostracize. They're looking for any weakness that they can. They're looking for any opportunity they can to embarrass him before the crowds, to accuse him of wrongdoing. And the power of the Lord, the power of God is there for healing. So it's like you've got this Bible study taking place. The room is filled. There are genuine followers of Jesus. There are genuine opponents of Jesus. And there's gasoline all over the floor. The power of the Lord is present for healing. And... Jesus is going to light a match in just a moment, and he's going to set that place afire. In verses 18 and 19, we notice that there are some genuine friends of a man who's paralyzed who want to get their friend to Jesus so that Jesus can heal him of his paralysis. Look with me in verse 18. And some were carrying a man on a stretcher who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him and to set him in front of Jesus. Uh, But when he did not find, but when they did not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. So they're a determined group of friends. They want their friend healed. And so they can't find a way to get through the crowd to Jesus, so they'll just go up the staircase to the roof, which would have been flat. It's where people would often go sometimes to pray and sometimes to get out of the heat of the day by catching a little bit of the, of the, of the shade off of the house. And so it would have been flat, and so they start digging through it, and Jesus is teaching, and, and, and mud and straw and such start falling down from the rafters, and up they look. Could you imagine if it was ceiling was this tall, and you're paralyzed, and you're on a mat, and you're swinging back and forth as they're, as they're trying to lower you, but it, it would not have been very tall. It might have been uh, six, seven feet tall, the ceiling. And so they they very carefully lower him and right down in front of Jesus. That's some good friends. But Jesus doesn't always do what we expect him to do. Instead of healing the man physically, he forgives the man spiritually. He deals with his greater need. He deals with his more significant issue. So look with me in verse 20. And seeing their faith, the faith of the friends and probably the faith of the man, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Now, it believed, at least not just believed, it's stated in the Old Testament that only God can forgive sins. Luke wants us to understand that only God can forgive sins. In fact, the response of the religious leaders in the next verse 
is to begin to think the thought, this man is committing blasphemy because he's claiming that he can do what only God can do, and that is to forgive sins. But that's exactly what Luke wants us to realize. Yes, only God can forgive sins. Jesus forgives the man of his sins. Jesus must be God. He's the divine Savior. Who is this man who blasphemes? Who can forgive sins except God alone? Well, only God can read a person's thoughts. And throughout this gospel, we're going to see over and over again, Jesus reading people's thoughts. He knows exactly what they're thinking. And he says, why are you thinking in your hearts about this? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or get up and walk. What's well, easier to say your sins are forgiven? How do you prove that? It's harder, it's harder to say, in a sense, get up and walk, but really the harder is the former. The only way that Jesus can ultimately forgive sins is by dying for the man's sins. That's really the harder of the two. But he says, in order that you can know that the Son of Man, that's the way Jesus referred to himself so often, it's a favorite self-designation. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. And he says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, take up your, take up your mat and go. Immediately he got up before them, picked up the mat he had been lying on, and went out glorifying God. Everybody's astonished and, and stunned. He knows what they're thinking, and then he says, get up and walk. And the man's strength is renewed to legs that had, had atrophy, where paralysis had set in. But Jesus dealt first with the more important issue, the forgiveness of his sins. I want to tie it all to, together with you for us with a couple, of, a couple of final thoughts. I want us to think for just a moment about the warning signs of being infected with Phariseeism. I coined the word Phariseeism. I checked several times with Alexa over the last couple of days just to make sure there wasn't actually a word Phariseeism. So, so Phariseeism. You see, Pharisaical religion is orthodox, but it's cold-hearted. It's theologically precise, but has no heartfelt devotion. It has very little concern for people of a different stripe. It's absolutely concerned that you look like them, and I look like you, and we look like one another. Phariseeism is an easy, infectious disease that permeates much of evangelical Christianity. See, the Pharisees knew the Scriptures better than any people in the ancient world. They were very zealous for fasting and tithing and prayer. They were very careful to be at synagogue worship every Saturday. And yet they were the major opposition to the ministry of Jesus, which, as I told you, it stunned me when I became a Christian and found that out. 
They were the chief instruments in Satan's hands that led to the culmination of Jesus, in, in Jesus' crucifixion. It's easily transmissible, Phariseeism. Whenever we emphasize external conformity to rules without heartfelt passion for Jesus, we are in danger of being infected by Phariseeism. We're in danger of walking in the footsteps of the Pharisees when we look down on other people because their ministerial passions aren't our ministerial passions. Their spiritual giftedness doesn't measure up to our spiritual giftedness. Their traditions don't match our traditions, although our traditions can't be, aren't mandated from the Bible, we've elevated our traditions to the Bible. So whether it's looking down on people because they're not as gifted as we are, we look down on people because their passions aren't our passions, or we just think, downright think we're better than they are, and we make it by little comments, little insinuations, little chuckles. We've been infected with Phariseeism. There's only one cure. The only cure for Phariseeism is God's grace. It's the antidote and the protection against becoming a Pharisee. It's about to get ratcheted up in Jesus' ministry. At every turn in the next several events, he's going to be encountering his opposition. He's going to encounter his opponents, and it's not the Roman government. It's not secular pagan government. It's religious hypocrisy. The the second thing I want us to think about for just a moment is, is the question, who is this who forgives sins? That's the question of the ages. Heaven and hell depend upon our answer to that question. Not just answering the question correctly, but believing the answer to be true. Many people say that Jesus Christ is God, Son of God, died for the redemption of the world, but their life has nothing to do in a commensurate way with the confession that they, that they make. Now, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. None of us are sinless, none of us are perfect, nor will we find sinless perfection in this life. But when your life is diametrically opposed in day-to-day living to the confession that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Jesus Christ died, was buried and raised on the third day and is now seated at God's right hand, We have to ask ourselves, do I genuinely believe it? And if I do, is it demonstrable in my worship, in my singing, in the the bold, strong, yearning desire to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to become an ever more growing disciple of Jesus? We don't want our children just to make the right confession. We want them to live the right life. We want them to understand their soul matters more than their grades. 
We want them to understand you can go to Harvard and go to hell with a confession that Jesus is God if you don't have that confession made real in your heart and life. And they learn it from us first and foremost. They watch us. Their religion is a metamorphosis to a great degree of our lives. They, they, they understand what is important by watching us. And so we have to make sure that our confession of faith is commensurate to the lifestyle that we live. And it doesn't mean that we're sinlessly, sinless or perfect because none of us are. We're far from it. It's two steps forward, one step back, but discipleship matters. Worship matters. The things that matter to Jesus matter to us, not as much as they matter to Jesus and not as much as we would want them to matter, but we're growing and maturing, and and it's slow and it's difficult, but there's evidence of progress, evidentiary progress. So the question of the ages is asked by the religious leaders who got it wrong, who is this man who forgives sins? It may be today that you've never met that man before. We would love to introduce you to him. We would love for you to meet the man who can forgive you of all of your sins and the man who can put inside of you the Spirit of God who will conform you into the image of our Savior. It may be that after the service, you would just go to one of our guest information tables. There are people there that can talk to you. You might might speak to me or one of the church staff members. You might just call the church this week and say, hey, I'd like to get word to the pastor, uh, Pastor Cook, ask he and Jaylen if they come over, and we would love to come over. It, It would be an honor or privilege to sit in your living room and open up the Bible with you and talk with you about how you can know Jesus Christ as as Savior and Lord. For the rest of us, let's do the best we can by the grace of God, not to walk in the footsteps of Phariseeism. It's an ugly disease that's much more infectious than leprosy. It's much more dangerous than COVID. It's much more debilitating than cancer. Phariseeism is a disease that destroys the heart of a person. So let's ask God always to make us gracious people, filled with grace like He, our Savior, was filled with grace. Opposing the things that he opposed, opposing them as strongly as he opposed them, because he opposed some things very, very strongly. But he would eat with tax collectors and sinners because that's why he came. He came to associate with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees said, don't do it. Hey, keep them at arm's length because there's a lot of infectious diseases that they will transmit to you. I'd say don't buy into Pharisaical religion. Buy into the religion of Jesus. Would you stand and let me lead us in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you today for the opportunity that we've had to be gathered here this morning. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. Lord, it's a, it was a short night and a cold morning, and yet here they are 
worshiping and singing and, and uh, engaged in, in fellowship and service. Uh, thank you for them. Father, as we get ready to go out into the world of fallen humanity, fill us with your spirit. Uh, let us be instruments of grace and gospel witness. In Jesus' name, amen.